0: So I want to <clears throat> talk tonight on the theme, the broad theme of the the unity of wisdom, of emptiness, and compassion. And I, I mean, I often talk about this because really, uh, the questions it raises in my mind are really kind of the heart of my practice, or the heart of the the conundrum, or the paradox of uh, life for me in spiritual practice. So I'm always kind of looking at it, um, sort of the question of how to open the heart and mind, how to remain or keep opening the heart and mind in this uh, complex and painful and sometimes really insane world, with both incredible beauty and love and un bearable suffering to even hear about, never mind witness or participate in. On the one side, and on the other side, the absolute knowing that everything's just arising and passing. And as someone said today really beautifully, so I'm not going to get the words exactly right, but it's all just part of one arising and passing flow. There's nothing separate. And from that place where there's There's almost nothing to do, nothing to have, nothing to be from that knowing, Then how to continue to respond in this world. How to respond when the motivation isn't fear or greed or self-interest. So in a way, to me, those are the two questions. How to stay open in this world, how not to drown in the suffering, is the compassion that can't really be deep compassion without the wisdom of emptiness, they have to come together. The second question, how to respond from the place of knowing everything's just coming and going and there's no separate anything and it's all just happening. That's the wisdom of of emptiness that manifests quite naturally as compassionate, kind action. They go together. Of course, they're not always equally strong, they're not always even accessible at all, But that's, to me, kind of the the deepening koan. Sometimes it seems completely, to me, uh, unintelligible and different. Sometimes it's so obvious that they arise together and there's no question whatsoever. There's nothing to even talk about. It's just so clear how how it is. And then all the shades in between. So I'm just offering some reflections and not in any way saying I've got the answers here. But to me, it cuts to the heart of the whole reason for spiritual life, for any life, really. So the wisdom of no, no self, of emptiness, of separate self, of anything being more important and lasting than something else, the wisdom of not needing to have preferences. You can have them, but not being attached. The, the freedom of the heart and mind of non-clinging, that's one side. And the other side naturally arises with. When the mind and heart isn't clinging, the natural response will be one of wholesome, skillful action. This sense of just how I was thinking about it tonight. You know those moments, we talk about them a lot, and you all have. We just, I call it moments of recognizing the purity of heart or mind. Just a moment of simple presence. You know those moments. It's often in nature because nature's easier, especially here. It's not bugging us. In fact, there aren't bugs, and nobody's telling us anything, and it's easier to just open without our defenses and sense of self. I read a book once called Alone, and the only thing I remember from it is a line that said, "It's easy to be with nature because nature has no subconscious." <laughs> so like you know, there's not like this subconscious stuff bugging each other. So, so anyway, just walking in the in the dark now and seeing the stars and hearing the frogs, and you just. You know, just those moments when you stop. And there's no particular self-referencing at all. You're not sitting there going, oh, a moment of purity, no self-referencing, just you know. In that place of whatever you want to call it, it's like perfection or love or simplicity or completeness. In that place, in that moment, a thought of harming could not arise. It doesn't compute. In that moment, in that place, if a response was called for, it would be one of the, so the Buddha talked about as a wise intentions. So I'll talk about it in a minute, that just is the natural manifestation, non-harming, compassion, goodwill, <laughs> generosity, the natural manifestation of the pure heart and mind. They go together. This is what um, could be called bodhicitta, the awakened heart, the awakened mind. Just want to read a little from Pema Chodron because I love her very kind of down to earth description of bodhicitta, which is, you know, the awakened heart, noble or awakened heart, what bodhicitta means. Guy spoke about it the other night. She calls it the soft spot inherent in all of us. And she calls bodhicitta simply a tenderness for life that awakens when we can no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. In the words of the 16th Karmapa, you take it all in. You let the pain of the world touch your heart and it turns into compassion. Compassion, tenderness for life, from the appreciating from the touching without separation, the knowing of the fragility and the beauty of life. Compassion or kindness or non-clinging is the natural response. It's not even like, let me think about how to respond. It just naturally flows. They're two sides of the same coin. Nisargadatta. Once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world and the world is myself, then you are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrow of humankind becomes your sole concern." Responsible for the world, not meaning that you personally have to fix it all, right? That's like where we go with our self-cherishing, I'm responsible for the world and I'm sure not doing a very good job. (laughs) That's not (laughs) what it means, okay? But once we know with confidence, and just for a moment, not once and for all, okay? Don't wait for the once and for all, but it goes back and forth. So in those moments when you can know with confidence, I am the world, the world is myself, in that moment we are free from desire and fear and, The senseless sorrow, the sorrow of humankind because of ignorance, does become our sole concern. That's the tenderness, the fragility, the beauty that touches our heart and elicits a natural compassion, natural expression of connectedness. I love that particular quotation, actually. So this is really what I want to talk about in different ways, these kind of two sides of the same coin. Different, just different ways of going in. Another way of seeing how they need each other, how they have to be together, is often when we talk about anatta, which we've talked about quite a bit this retreat, the, the sense that there's no intrinsic, separate self, and all the myriad of questions that the questioning mind comes up with that I do not need to recap, right, because you all know. But one of the one of the kind of fears, or one of the ideas the thinking mind throws up an idea that's not based on actual experience, but that pretty much arises in all of our, many of our, I shouldn't say all, but in many of our thinking mind, self-centered thinking mind is, you know, either the idea of a life of non-clinging or of no separate self, it doesn't really sound appealing. And all the what about and what if and, you know, this is usually, well, what about pleasure, what about love, what about preferences, what about just knowing who i am what you know why would i want to live like that it's almost as if the idea is it that, that the epitome of wisdom of emptiness is some kind of dull cold grey void void of everything you know void of happiness void of everything that obviously hopefully it's obvious isn't true because as i was saying it's not that at all it's just the uh, potential for response when response is called for, and the response that naturally arises is—and this is the beautiful part—the way the Buddha, the way the Buddha breaks things down. I mean, he was certainly uh, an organizational genius in terms of organizing. You know <laughs> how the mind works. I mean, amazing, really. Can you imagine sitting down and coming up with all this stuff? I mean, it's amazing. So anyway. Um, in terms of talking about how this penetration of the truth of no separate self of not self-cherishing of non-clinging how that manifests in the world is right there in the noble eightfold path that the first step in some ways is is um, samaditi right view right understanding which would be this wisdom piece right really seeing there's nothing separate knowing that in a moment Samaditi leading to the next steps, which are translated variously as wise thought or wise intention. And intention, remember we've talked about that, and Guy will talk about it some more in his Kama talk, intention being that urge, that mental movement that leads to thought, speech, and action. So wise intention leading to the next steps of the path, which are wise speech, wise action, wise, wise livelihood and then into the meditation piece, although it's not really separate. And the really cool thing, if you really look in your experience and hopefully see that it's true for you sometimes, because that helps us trust it more, the really cool thing is that with the deepening understanding Just those little purity moments I was talking about. You don't have to have the big flash, bam, it's over. Just the little purity moments. And you don't even have to have a really brilliant thought that lets you know you own it. You can trust. In those moments, what starts to happen, what actually does happen, is the habits of our mind, the intentions, the unwholesome ones, our big friends, greed, hatred, and delusion. But in terms of intention, he speaks more about greed and hatred, they naturally start to transform. The wise intentions are that the intention of greed naturally be transforms in the light of wisdom to non-greed, which is both renunciation and then an act of generosity. And hatred is broken into two things. There's ill will, which naturally is transformed in a moment of purity into friendliness, into goodwill or metta. And the other aspect is cruelty, you know, which can take place internally. Cruelty can just be kind of an anger, kind of a striking out, you know, all the way to real cruelty, hatred. And that transforms to compassion, to non-harming, to really caring for, they wish to alleviate our own and other people's suffering. It's cool because this is the natural, I mean, you'd have to fight not to have this happen. And it makes sense really, even on the intellectual level, which, Intellectual level is useful. And I'm always talking about dropping under it, but using our thoughts, as Sally talked about last night, you know, thoughts aren't to hate. If we can just understand what a thought is, we can really use it quite helpfully instead of having it run our lives, which is more what happens. But on the intellectual level, it it even makes sense of just seeing the energy that is bound up when so much of our thought and our selective perception and our motivations and what we do is bound up in self-referencing. You've noticed that, right? Once in a while, how much of the thoughts are about me? How much of the day is about me? How much of whatever happens in the dining room is about me? And then we have to have all our reactions and our response and then our self-judging for our reactions. And yeah, no wonder we're exhausted at the end of the day. It is exhausting. (laughs) It's really exhausting. So in those moments, have you wondered why when that's not going on, the energy's better? There's more because, because all that energy is released into presence. It's released into awareness. It's like available, you know? Instead of all bound up in this junk that we call our self story and our life, so just explore just tiny little i 'll give you a tiny little example that isn 't even anything judgmental or bad, just a little way how how the shift they, in you know here at the meal time there 's a sign for Donna where people can offer for for the meals, which they do in Burma really every day it 's really quite. It's quite nice to see. So at IMS, we have that too. But the way it works at IMS is uh, you walk into the dining room and there's kind of a wall where you get your, your place and then you walk over. And right on the wall, there's a big kind of whiteboard calendar with maybe you know half the month, the date's up, and then if there's a donation that day, who did it and the dedication. So you walk up and you see like you know 15 days at a time. So half the time, I never even look at it, right? Other times I go, but this one time, or it was a couple years ago, I had uh, made a donation for some day. And then I remember walking in, and as soon as I walked in, I immediately looked at the board and I didn't see anything else. I just wanted to see my day. Where's my day? What does it say, you know? <laughs> and just that sense of the narrowing and the tightness and the self-referencing. And then I saw, oh yeah, oh look at all these days. <laughs> look at all these lovely dedications. Look at all this generous stuff. You know, as soon as that was just let go of, naturally there was the expansion and the appreciation, you know, of people's generosity and a kind of a a friendliness, a goodwill came quite naturally. That's a lot of our practice, right? Just just the tightness, experiencing it. Oh, there's a piece of wisdom, a piece of seeing it. How many times have you noticed? Please say at least once that it naturally (laughs) kind of opens up, right? You see that. (laughs) You have to see it. By God, after three weeks, (laughs) at least once. (laughs) But it does happen. (laughs) So the thing about intention, and what I'm sure Guy will be talking about a lot more, intention is really the seed of the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of action, thought, speech, and action in the way that the Buddha understood it and in this way that we're talking. And as I mean, we've said it before, we'll say it again, but it that goes a little counter to uh, kind of our normal societal ways of assessing the benefit or the usefulness or the success of an action, right? I mean, it's usually based on did that action achieve the desired result, which is usually some kind of, measurable or observable result. I mean, of course, that's reasonable, but that's usually was a good action and what I wanted to happen happened. But what we may forget to look at, or I was certainly never really taught to look at, is in terms of how the Buddha understands the purity, the wisdom, the deepening compassion, the habits of our mind and heart, what's being fed, what's being starved, Is that the whole seed of the action is in the intention? So something may achieve a seemingly good result, but we were driven in the doing of it by uh, total greed or total anger. So, in terms of looking at what's being cultivated, what's being fed, it's greed, it's anger. Now, take away feeling greed is bad, anger is bad, so therefore I'm bad. You have to not go there. But just be exploring in terms of, does greed and anger, as it gets stronger, as we've said a million times, does it increase my sense of happiness or unhappiness, suffering or unsuffering? Does it increase the ability to be present with myself and others in difficult circumstances? Does it increase a sense of separation Does it open to more of that place of connectedness and beauty? This is to explore for ourselves, not just to say, greed is bad, I'm not going to do it, I'm so bad. That's, you know, separate, separate, separate. But this is a really interesting place of exploration, that the natural result of wisdom, of clear seeing, of non-self, of emptiness, of whatever, is that these wise intentions of non-clinging or generosity, goodwill, and compassion naturally grow and strengthen. Our habits of mind and heart really change. And again, even in little things, I know if you contemplate back, not when your mind is filled with judging because we can't trust any assessment that's made with a mind that's colored by greed and aversion. You can't can't trust any thoughts that come as a clear assessment. But when your mind's relatively balanced, just contemplate, reflect. And I'm sure you'll come up with moments, moments where somebody was driving you crazy, you were filled with anger, or filled with blame, or filled with judgment, or you turned it against yourself, or you know, wherever we go with those things. Really in it, and something just shifts that gets done. You really look at the person. I mean, mean, so many people say this, you just look at the person and something about them goes in. You open to them and feel their pain and the whole story of me and them and their bad and anger is gone. It's gone for that moment. Just the willingness to move out of the self-referential. It's all about me and this is bothering me. Oh, wow. Look at that. It's another angle. It's us, not me and you. I mean, that's saying it verbally, but it happens on another level. That piece of non-separation immediately, cruelty changes to compassion, ill will changes to goodwill. Wanting to keep my things for me so it changes to a letting go. Yeah, it might be only for a second. You know, we're not talking about steady state, but just notice that this, see if this is really true for you at times. I think Sally, somebody read this quotation from the Buddha, that whatever one frequently thinks about and dwells upon, that becomes the inclination of their mind. That's just common sense. So this is why, of course, the Brahma-Vihara practice, it's obvious we're actually substituting verbal thoughts. So that's good. That's when, when I think Sally quoted me at some stupid thing I said one time about fake metta is better than real aversion. Yeah. But but what I meant, if I think back, I'm not really sure what I meant, but if I think back, it's like even saying, May I be happy, I don't feel it. But I don't mean you stupid jerk, you know, scum of the earth. <laughs> At least I'm saying, may I be happy. It's I was a friend of mine was telling about a, a Tibetan teacher who was talking about acting compassionately in one of his students said, but I don't feel it. I don't feel compassion. He said, I'm not telling you to feel, I'm just saying act compassionately, (laughs) and sometimes it's not hypocritical, but sometimes, actually, it can go that way. Anyway, where I was going to with that, the Brahma Viharas is more obvious on the level of actual thought, but even more powerful and profound is every moment of mindful awareness, because mindfulness those moments of clear seeing is a moment of mindful, pure chitta in a way, pure mind, that real mindfulness isn't colored in that moment. It's not corrupted by aversion and greed and confusion. Just recognizing what's happening. So you're just sitting and there's just, you know, earth element in your butt. And it goes from being some whole story to oh yeah, hardness. That's a simple moment of mindfulness. That's a moment of wisdom, of non-self-referencing. That's a moment where the intention is shifted from unwise, suffering intention to wisdom, to non-harming, to friendliness. That's why the steadiness, the continuity of mindful awareness has so much power. But it's also why we often don't notice what's happening, because it's not any big bells and whistles but it's steady, steady, steady opening us to wisdom and changing the habits. And habits are powerful, right? Habits are powerful. I won't go into it a lot. I'll just say in the last maybe four or five years, I've been spending quite a bit of time in various nursing homes and assisted living facilities because of my various parents in various places. And so you really get to see, a lot of different people with, basically in various stages of dementia. And so one of the things I would say that goes on in dementia is, I mean, it's different for different people, but one of the things is your kind of personality defense systems where you're trying to put on a good face, but it's not really your big habit. You can't quite remember that one anymore, <laughs> and so so the real habits just start coming out. And you can you can really see. There's you know some places I go in and there's more women than men usually in these places but men too where someone is just really very friendly and affectionate and kind and every time you go and she's oh I'm so happy to see you and it's not about me I mean she doesn't know who the heck I am but <laughs> there's just this kind of friendliness it's, you can tell this is a kind friendly person you know and then there's someone else is sitting there you try to say something kind of she like me alone you got to disappear. <laughs> Okay. okay. I said, "Do you want to go eat now?" They were all just. No, I don't want to go eat. You can't make me. I said, "You're right. <laughs> You're right. You don't have to eat. If you don't want to eat. i you know, sorry, but you, you never know. You know, and you, you really, you really can see the habits of a lifetime, what we've cultivated. What's the? Th- I want to accept, take out of that certain things like um, I think Alzheimer's can actually affect the brain in a way that changes the habits, and that's a different thing, right? We can't that's a physical-based thing that there's nothing we can really do about. Parkinson's a little, I mean there's things like that too. But I'm talking about, and I'm including my mother in this, it, I can really see that the organic kind of mind is still there and her personality is still there. I've known her, and if anything, her sweetness has come, and my mother, luckily, her sweetness has come out more, you know. But it's, it's ways that was always there. But I want to tell you, for me, it puts the fear of God into me. <laughs> it's like, oh God. <laughs> What's it going to be like? (laughs) I better get working now. It's not so funny. Think about it. (laughs) It's not so funny. So while these... Qualities, and I'm going to use compassion as sort of a stand-in for all three of the wise intentions. In some ways, compassion or non, non-harming, caring, kind of includes all of them in a way. Compassion in, in the way the Tibetans like bodhicitta, this tender, this awakened heart that the highest manifestation is the sincere wish to practice and awaken so that one can help awaken all beings. But feel this tenderness for life can manifest in many forms. And so how it happens naturally through our growing understanding and insight and wisdom, growing trust in awareness and less trust in the painful habits. And also, you know, we can consciously incline the mind. With wisdom, with interest, what are we feeding, what are we starving? And sometimes we can't make a choice, but sometimes we can, you know. there's some book, Choose Love, sometimes we can choose compassion. Sometimes we'd like to and, you know, we just can't. But even in those times, we can usually choose mindfulness. We can usually choose awareness of the fact that I totally hate everybody and everything and I can't change that right now. But I'm aware of that. (laughs) I'm not kidding. No, no, I'm not kidding. That's something. Awareness a samado says, the point that includes, it includes everything. Awareness is not colored or stained or damaged by anything. Awareness can even include hatred. And when awareness includes it more and more, and we begin to take our trust and our stand in awareness, hatred's not being fed anymore. Pain's not being fed anymore. It may seem really strong and overwhelming, but there's a back and forth. Something starts to shift. It really does. So the Dalai Lama talking about cultivation, cultivating compassion, and he said, how does it develop? And this is really key. He said, it develops compassion by deep insight into what suffering is. And that arises by being present with our own suffering experience. Where else is it going to arise? You know, we think, I often think, you know, I should be working in a refugee camp, I should be somewhere where there's really suffering. Look in your own mind and heart. There's plenty of suffering and confusion and pain. This is the place we can start to bear witness. This is the place we can learn what compassion and kindness and being present in the face of suffering really is. It's our best laboratory and workshop, aren't you happy? This is why, really, and on this I mean this, I know people don't believe us when we say this in interviews, but it's really true, why the really difficult aspects or times on a retreat are so key. Because this is the place where the deep suffering, habits, and confusion are really coming up in the light of awareness. I think I said one of my teachers used to say, in the light of awareness, all the snakes come up out of their holes. That's what happens. But there's more awareness, there's a little more trust, and there's a commitment, you know. It's in our life too, is isn't just on retreat at all. But why on retreat? That is a, such a valuable opportunity. It doesn't mean we're gonna fix it all. That's not what compassion's about. But it means we can bear witness with kindness, with presence, that's really what learning about our compassion through our suffering is. So that's the first piece he says. Compassion awakens through deep insight into suffering by opening to being with our own suffering. And then, through this opening to suffering, to dukkha, compassion strengthens as it moves into a sense of empathy or connectedness with other beings and with all beings. And that can also be starting right here. I mean, people give examples of this too. Just little examples. I I actually am making this up. It's sort of maybe what someone told me, I don't have a clear memory. If it is, I don't think but we're, we're, I don't know, having back pain or having a sense of deep grief and really struggling with all the stuff, the pain, the reaction, the aversion, the frustration, all of that stuff, you know. But at some point, and for many people this happens, it's not that the pain lessens, but the sense of it being all about me somehow drops. And where it's been, oh, so many in the people in the world are going through grief right now. It changes the whole relationship. So many people in the world have back pain or worse. And it's not and you shouldn't, you know, not like a shaking your finger thing, but it's like, oh, my back pain, my grief is like a, a stand in, a representative for the grief of the world. It isn't my grief or my back pain. It's like, this is the world. I am the world, the world is myself. And we all kind of take turns manifesting different aspects of suffering and beauty. So in this way, what's going on here in the retreat? And we can bring the same attitude into our life, of course, it's just more structured here. We have less to distract us. That's why the pains and the difficulties seem so big, we have less to distract us. That's done on purpose, of course. But (laughs) what's arising, you know, that's what's arising. That you could say that's the vipaka, the result of you know, previous karma, previous cause and effect, ripening right now. How that's being met in the moment, that's the intention that's being cultivated. So when what arises, no matter how beautiful or difficult or how lost we seem or whatever it is, Just that conscious intention to be mindful of it. You don't even have to think compassionate, just mindful. (laughs) Just, you know, what Sylvia keeps saying, I forget how she says it, but something about being friendly with whatever's happening. You know, being mindful. That's huge. That's huge. Every moment, how we meet what's currently arising now is the cultivation of compassionate intention. It's the cultivation of wisdom, and it's the manifestation of wisdom. It's really extremely powerful. So we get so, just like with intention and action, we get so, we tend to look so much into the result of action and miss the intention. And similarly so on our retreat, hard stuff is happening, physical, emotional, dukkha, in whatever way, and we tend to either focus on what's happening and how to fix it or how we can't fix it or how we're not meeting it, you know, we're not whatever, instead of just looking at what's the attitude in the mind that's meeting it, just to have the potential. I was reading a book uh, recently about nonviolence, different aspects of nonviolence through the, through the ages and history. And there's one uh, line from Dr. Martin Luther King that I really liked. Because nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, you refuse to hate him. Compassion this cultivation of compassion as an expression of deep wisdom. It's that level. Not just a man, we refuse to hate a man. It's refusing to hate any aspect of our experience. It doesn't mean you have to love it either. So I want to balance that with Ajahn Samato. It's the same thing in his very down-to-earth way. If you're being very idealistic and you hate someone, or I want to say, or yourself, or you hate something that's arising in your experience here, just to keep it on that level, Then you feel, I shouldn't hate anyone, I shouldn't hate anything. I'm a Buddhist, and Buddhists should have metta for all living beings, and I should meet everything with metta. I should love everybody if I'm a good Buddhist. He says, all that comes from impractical idealism. Instead, try having a little metta for the aversion you feel, but recognize aversion for the pettiness of the mind, the jealousy, the envy. Metta meaning peacefully coexisting, not creating problems, not making it difficult or creating problems out of the difficulties that arise in life, in our minds and bodies. I mean, the stuff happens, and we hate them. All of that happens. We don't have to go the extra step, or when we see we're going the extra step, just let your awareness get a little bit bigger and include that too. Oh, yeah, look at that habit of hating the hate. Look at that habit of just, this shouldn't be happening, and I should know better. Look at that. And in that moment, that's a shift of wise intention, of wisdom, from hating the hate, blaming, you know, or wanting to, oh, it's like this. I love that Samedo saying, it's like this. Because you can't really go there without somehow dropping the deep identification and resistance. Oh, it's like this. What do you do with that? Nothing. It's just like this. Okay step back into that, at least in the direction of that natural purity. I'm not saying, and you know already, right, that this is easy or simple in any way, in any way. We wouldn't have to practice so hard. We wouldn't be so... uh, spiritual practice wouldn't be both so, so central to our lives and so difficult, and we wouldn't have so much inspiration, really, and be so deeply touched by people who can manifest this if it was just run-of-the-mill easy. On the other hand, I feel if we didn't really know already, know below the level of thinking, the truth of this, then we also wouldn't be deeply touched and inspired by people and beings and acts of compassion and wisdom, because we, we just wouldn't even recognize it. But I'm not saying in any way that it's that it's easy. Our denial systems—well, that's what you've all been seeing. Part of what you've been seeing are particular personal denial systems, our personality denial systems, when we come in contact with certain aspects of personal suffering. And in a few interviews today, I mean, we were kind of laughing in a couple where we go, "Oh, I." this habit of my mind, I never saw it before. Well, actually I did see it, but you kind of go, Oh, I see it, but I'm not really doing that. You know, that's not really happening. And we come back and then suddenly some, some veil drops and you go, Oh, I've been completely blaming myself. I've been completely filled with guilt all the time. And there's part of your mind goes, yeah, I know I've been seeing that forever, but not really. You know, the denial the delusion is, it's an amazing, fascinating force. Really, I think the force of denial. So, I'm not in any way saying it's easy. So, one way of denial is just absolutely pushing away physical, emotional suffering altogether, right? The denial of what I read the other night going for the pleasant, running away, doing something. You know, we all know that. I don't have to go into that. And that's part of what the structure of retreat doesn't let us do as much. There's many other forms of denial. Self-judgment is a huge form of This shouldn't be happening, and in fact, it's not happening, and it's only happening because I'm a loser, you know, and if I could do it right, this wouldn't be happening. Or blame or anger, you know, find your own, the denial system. They're really strong. Some is just plain, outright denying that suffering is even happening, because it's too painful to touch. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it. I was in the hospital once, many years ago, and I'd been there a while and I was having to get a lot of IVs, you know, where they have to stick the thing in your vein. And so after you've been there a while, your veins kind of start depleting, you know, and it gets a little harder to get the thing in. And so this one day, um, this nurse was trying to do it and she couldn't do it. And They tried like two or three times and they couldn't get it in. And it's, you know, it's not killer pain, but it's, it's not nice. And I wasn't in the best space. So, a little, so finally she said, okay, I'll go get the doctor. And then I thought, no disrespect to any doctors, but I thought, now I'm really in trouble. Because the nurses are the ones who do it all the time, not the doctors. So she went and grabbed some doctor walking by, I mean, I didn't even know the guy, and he comes in and he's the same thing, poke, poke, poke. And uh, a little, just little tears, I was being, you know, a good girl, but a little tear came down because it, it did really hurt. And he goes, what's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, I didn't think, oh, that'll make a good story. But it has, you know, I've gotten much more use out of it than a couple of minutes. But that level, I really could actually understand it. His intention was not to hurt. You know, he wasn't being cruel. That's where you can see stabbing someone could come from a lot of intentions. His intention was trying to help. And trying to help, and you see that you can't control the result, and you're hurting someone, that's hard to be with sometimes. It's hard to deal with. We want it all to be nice. We want it all to be good. We want our good intentions to manifest, and it's not so clear-cut. It's not so, life isn't like that. It's ambiguous. So one of the ways of the denial, and this is where compassion really needs the wisdom of equanimity, the vastness of emptiness. We drown, you know, we can drown in our own suffering, then try just reading the damn newspapers on a bad day, and you think, you know, I can't bear that. And I go through fail, I listen to the news every day, and I just, you know, on some days it just ugh, feel like I'm drowning. I can't possibly open to this. That's when, and just being here in your own stuff when it's really strong, that's when the compassion's, you know, you're touching it, but ugh, getting sucked in, sucked in, drowning in it. It's too much. It's overwhelming. And there's still the me-me in there. This isn't a judgment. It's just seeing that's the compassion that isn't balanced at this moment by the wisdom of equanimity. Equanimity, both in terms of the vastness of no particular self, of it's all coming and going, and that we can't control. Equanimity has a lot of different functions. But also, denial, or it can fall in the other way. It's not exactly denial, but more like a delusion, which is called kind of like falling into emptiness. You know those times where there really is a sense? of you're sitting, you're walking, everything's just coming and going, coming and going, there's nothing last, there's no anything that's more important than anything else. And you think out of this, how would you act? What difference does anything make? In this place, nothing really makes a difference. Again, then that's the place where, where do we find the, the impulse to act. <laughs> Falling into emptiness. It can, I mean, it's not our main problem, but it can really turn into uh, a long period of delusion. Nyoshal Kempo, the Kempo that Guy spoke about the other night. The danger in that is that we hear too much too soon. We think we have understood emptiness or shinyata, and we err on the side of the absolute in a nihilistic fashion and are obscured by concepts. Everything's empty. Nagarjuna said, It is sad to see those people who mistakenly believe in material concrete reality. But far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. Believe in emptiness. Those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practice, through the way of skillful means. But those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to reemerge since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, and nothing to do. Don't think of that too. You can hear it. The difference when we say there's nothing to do, nothing to have, nothing to be, and when that comes from real wisdom in a moment, there's a natural response if there's something to do. But we can sort of know it and sort of get lost in the ideas. Now somebody comes, somebody's suffering. There's nothing to have, nothing to do, nothing to be. You know, disconnect. So that's when wisdom needs to be balanced with compassion. Why they really together are the strength of awakening. So I'm not saying it's easy. And in some ways, what it really calls from us is what I think everyone here already has, or you wouldn't be on this path, you wouldn't have been doing so much practice in so many different ways, you wouldn't really still be here. But it's really tuning into your deep aspiration, a commitment really, tuning in over and over to uh, and committing ourselves over and over to whatever form the aspiration takes, whether it's a commitment to awakening or a commitment to compassion or a commitment to integrity or honesty or mind, you know, whatever form it takes for you. But we need to sometimes consciously call on it, because the denial system and the overwhelming capacity of so much pain and suffering and so much in this world and so much of it is clearly needless, you know, that it is so easy from really seemingly what we say is the best intentions to engage in action. Uh, And there's so much, you know, it's endless what any of us could do that really starts from the sincere intention to help, to serve, to come from wisdom, to cultivate love, whatever it is for you. There's a million different ways. But if we can't keep coming back to staying in touch with that deep inner intention, springing from wisdom, springing from non-self cherishing, then however wonderful stuff we do, it starts to be that the, the, the good intention is from the outside in you know, rather than from the inside out. And it starts to get uh, a little off, a little twisted. This is really where the Buddhist thing about the purity of intention starts from the inside. I mean, we all know, we all know stories about peace marches where people are marching for peace and the thing turns violent, where, you know, it gets so lost in frustration at people being clearly, you know, vindictive, harmful, angry, whatever, and the only kind of way or the only way we can think to come back against that, to affect a change, is with anger, you know, is with hatred. Is that so, it's kind of sad that sometimes that's the main way we know to call up energy, you know, greed or anger. Sometimes people have said to me, "Energy, if I give up greed, what am I going to do, just sit in my room the rest of my life? But that's the thing, to learn action can come from other intentions. (laughs) Compassion is a great real compassion. It's a great source of action and courage when it comes from the inside out. From not just an idea but from our understanding. When the understanding supports the compassion it's so transformative. But this is really I think this is where we get to the koan part, the part that's really, for me, the whole practice of a lifetime, because it's the world is so complex, ambiguous, and even coming from the inside out, even if we can really get in touch with the depth of our wisdom and motivation, it doesn't mean that there's any guarantee that our actions are going to affect. The result that we want can we still you know take refuge in uh, the depth of our understanding and our commitment to non-harming or compassion? It gets really hard, doesn't it you know, you know um, to trust enough to keep coming back to that? And then there's times when it's just ambiguous and you don't have all the information. You don't have all the information and it's so painful, just might want to shrink away. How do you stay open in that? If you've ever had to be the medical proxy for somebody who can't make decisions for themselves and you have to decide whether the doctor should do this intervention or not, you know, keep them alive or not, and believe me, whatever things they said to do, something different always comes up, you know? You make the best thing you can. You think, well, they would want this to happen, and you do it. And then there's so much suffering comes from that that you couldn't have known. Think, ah, you know, my decision put them through these extra three weeks of this suffering. Can we stay open in that without blame, without judgment, and without needing to say, oh, you know, it's too much. I don't want to be here. It's not personal. You know, but we can't control the results of anything, and we don't have all the information a lot of the time. Can we kind of take a over and over? It's like making a resolve. As Ajahn Semedo said he was talking about, I was on a retreat here last summer, and he was talking, or maybe he was talking to the teachers after, and he talks so much about having total confidence in awareness. You know, just trust in this thing that it's like this. That's his confidence in awareness. Awareness can be with anything. And then he was talking about, not so long ago, I think a few years ago, a really difficult period at his monastery at Amaravati where he's the head, right? So he was coming under a lot of criticism. They were having long meetings. It was just really, you know, one of those long organizational intent in, you know, really yucky periods. And he was getting all the blame. He said, I hate to be blamed. My personality hated it. I'm thinking, I'm trying to do the best I can. Don't you get that? And everyone's hating me and you know, and he was really starting to get caught, he said. And then he stopped and he said, after this was going on for weeks, months, he said, he said, I just stopped and I saw, you know, I was really getting sucked back into fighting it, resisting it, blame. I thought, I just have to really make a determination, an absolute determination to trust awareness. This is like not an idea, but a deep, you know, heartfelt intention to really trust it, even when You're doing the best you can and everything's going to hell and everybody's blaming you and you know you're just trying to come from wisdom and compassion. Even then, can we take the deep... For him, it's trusting awareness. For each of you, it might be something else. But to keep trusting, to have confidence in the truth of how things really are, to spring from that and not to get so silent into the way I want it to be isn't happening. So this must not work, let me try something else. I mean, it, it for me, it calls up everything and, you know, fail in it a lot of times. That's why I get so inspired by people who can uh, model that for me. Mm-hmm. So little examples, no one you don't know. One, of course, is, um, well, actually, you know, James Lawson, who is, um, he's a Christian minister has been for many, many years, but he was a very uh, strong leader in uh, the whole civil rights movement uh, along with Dr. King. And before the civil rights movement in the early 50s, he was a very uh, deeply committed to nonviolence, and he was a conscientious objector in the um, Korean War. And he could have, because he was a minister, he could have not, you know, had to go to jail, he could have been excused, but he said no. You know, if other people have to go to jail, I will too. So he went to jail for it, and then after that, he went to India. And I mean, Gandhi was dead, but he studied some. But anyway, this is the point I wanted. He after that, he came out, and he was really one of the teachers uh, of how to uh, of of the civil rights movement, of how to really carry out all the really powerful demonstrations and um, civil disobedience from the deep understanding of nonviolence, which is, as as Martin Luther King said, not just not overtly being violent, but not letting yourself hate. But anyway, he said, I discovered a strength and power in me when he was in jail, he said. I discovered a strength and power in me to live out of my own conscience. That's really what I'm talking about. How do we find that strength and power in ourselves to live out of our own conscience? And it leads not to being a doormat, you know, but to incredible acts of courage. And it doesn't always get what you want, but it really can bring out that inspiration, that sense of possibility in other people. And uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, who has been under house arrest in Burma for going on 17 years now, uh, she's a very potent symbol in Burma of the democratic movement. I mean, People really All normal people love her, but they can't even say her name. But uh, she stands for nonviolence, and she says over and over, my purpose is to purify the mind and heart. She said, I never went to become the leader of the democratic movement in Burma. She said, I just try to do whatever's right in the name of love or in the name of justice. She says, the motivation is its own reward. And you can't say, I mean, she's inspiring. Most of the people in the country, you can't say that what's actually happening is good or doesn't even look like it's going in a good direction, you know. But she, out of this place of commitment to what seemed true and just and purifying her own heart, you know, she's been willing, because she could leave the country at any time, she could just never go back. So she's been willing to stay there while her husband, who was English, died of cancer, while her two adolescent sons have grown up. And she really has no contact. I mean, she's really under house arrest, but she knows in some way that she's the heart of inspiration to so many people, and she really is. One year, I was um, teaching up in Chaswa in this monastery up in uh, north in Sagain, and we visit some little nunneries nearby, and we went into visiting this one where we often go, and it's a a poor little one. And they have like little outside patio, and then they took us, I think it was with Michelle, they took us upstairs in their little crummy building, and they have like a room that they roll up their mats in the day, and maybe all the 15 nuns sleep there at night. It's very, very kind of crummy, falling down wood. And they took us around, and they had this tiny, crummy little bookcase with the doors closed. And they, and yet they opened it up, and they pushed aside some books, and they go, look. And they had a picture of Su of <laughs> Do Su And they were so proud. of You know, just these little, almost, you know, uneducated nuns. And they had to hide it like that. But they're so you know proud of it, so happy. And it's like that. It's like that with everybody. So she knows it in some way, but she's not saying, oh, I'm the leader. And, and also, it's not working, so I'm out of here. It's finding that sense of, of deep um, commitment from wisdom and compassion. Not a doormat. But just knowing that who we are and how we act has an effect, whatever the actual thing that happens is. And even in very simple ways, I'm not saying we need to be Martin Luther King or James Lawson or Aung San Suu Kyi, I mean, you know, just little actions, all our actions, where we're coming from has an effect. I I heard this on the radio, John Sununu, who was the chief of staff to the first President Bush. And he was talking about, on the BBC, um, about presidential transition after the last election and choosing team members and how important it is to choose team members. And he's saying about foreign policy, he said, people may think that the work and the interaction in the State Department and with foreign diplomats and departments is all based on the greater vision. But but really, what it comes down to is personal interaction. That's the driving force. So it's really important who you get on the team and that kind of like, that does you know it's like the world is just people and where people come from ends up showing up and what they do how we act over the long term so in terms of cultivation you know our mindfulness is our strongest tool it's our strongest reliance absolutely because moment after moment of awareness opens us to see the truth clearly no question about that but also just small simple acts for us have a huge effect just the willingness to have this commitment to our deepest aspiration and to just do a small acts of kindness just a small act of non hatred towards ourselves towards others either way you know you see that we're not separate so i think i'll just end with a story and then again, I got off. I heard on the radio one of these uh, people who, who are giving their stories. And it's from a prisoner who'd been uh, in, in jail for 20 years, convicted of second degree murder in 1985. So he's saying, caring makes us human. And I won't read the whole thing, but he's talking about a, a small, scruffy cat showed up in the prison yard one day. And I was one of the first to go and pet it. I had not touched a cat or a dog in over 20 years. I spent at least 20 minutes crouched down behind the dumpster as the cat rolled around and luxuriated beneath my attention. What he was expressing outwardly, I was feeling inwardly. It was an amazing piece of grace to feel him under my hand and know that I was enriching the life of another creature with something as simple as my care. I believe that caring for something or someone in need is what makes us human. Over the next few days, I watched other prisoners responding to the cat. Every yard period, a group of prisoners gathered there. They stood around talking and taking turns petting the cat. These were guys you wouldn't usually find talking to each other. I even saw sometimes an officer in the group, not chasing people away, but just watching and seeming to enjoy it along with the prisoners. Bowls of milk and water appeared, along with bread, and uh, the cat was obviously astray and in bad shape. One prisoner brought out his small, blunt-tipped scissors and trimmed burrs and matted fur from his coat. People said, that cat came to the right place. He's getting treated like a king. This was true, but as I watched, I was also thinking about what the cat was doing for us. He said, there's a lot of talk about what's wrong with prisons in America. We need more programs, more psychologists, or treatment of various kinds. I think what we really need is a chance to practice kindness ourselves. Not receive it, but give it. After more than two decades here, I know that kindness is not a value that's encouraged. It's often seen as weakness. The culture does instead encourage keeping your head down, minding your own business, and never letting yourself be vulnerable. For a few days, a raggedy cat disrupted this code of prison culture. They've taken him away now, hopefully to a decent home, but it did my heart good to see the effect he had on me and the men here. Simply by saying, I need some help here, he did something important for us. He needed us. We need to be needed. I believe we all do. Ashanti Davis said, "When I." Do something for the sake of another. No feeling of conceit or amazement arises. It's as if having fed myself. I look for nothing in return. Let's sit for a minute.